0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Jeremiah this morning, near the end. In fact, chapter 50. How about that? 50, 51, and 52. And our uh, year long roller coaster through the book of Jeremiah is very quickly approaching its conclusion with uh, two of the most difficult chapters in the whole book, 50 and 51. Uh, difficult thematically, difficult doctrinally, lengthy, uh, just a number of verses between, I've got 110 verses we are got to cover between this week and next. All right. Not exactly Easter material, but we'll, we'll work it in, okay, as far as that goes. Because uh, the week after Easter is Jeremiah 52 and uh, we'll be wrapping up the book study and then that afternoon I'm getting on the plane for Ukraine. So uh, we gotta we got to finish the Jeremiah study in the next couple of weeks because um, it would just be unthinkable to uh, make it wait three weeks for me to come back from Ukraine. Uh, Hebrews the next uh, book study will be the book of Hebrews coming up on Sunday mornings at the 11 o'clock hour. And uh, I'm looking forward to that very much as well. But for today, we've got to cover Jeremiah 50. And if we can sneak a few points out of chapter 51, we'll do ourselves a favor for next week. Communion Sunday is next week, by the way, Easter Sunday. And uh, more material to cover then. So we'll see how far we make it today. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to set aside our distractions and our worries and our concerns that he might take every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, it is your grace provision for us day by day and moment by moment, Father, great is thy faithfulness. I do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together, to study, to show ourselves approved, And Father, believers have been gathering together for Bible teaching for thousands of years, Father, but in this age, in this church age, where we have each one of us, the permanent indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit, where we have um, a gifted pastor teacher, where we have Uh, the the, the flock of the saints assembled together father we have church age blessings that are unique to our day and age we want to thank you for that and we call upon your faithfulness to bless these uh, these studies to open our eyes the eyes of our understanding to uh, lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake i thank you father in jesus christ's name amen all right fasten your seatbelt because we've got a lot of ground to cover and uh, even before we can tackle verse 1, we're a to hopefully get a, a nice overview, overview for what this chapter and the next are dealing with. 110 verses in chapter 50 and 51, it comprises the largest collection of messages against Babylon. And I should put Babylon in quotes, because Babylon is a lot bigger than Babylon. It's a lot bigger than one earthly uh, nation, and we'll talk about that. But it is the largest collection of messages against Babylon compiled by a single author. You might recall in our Isaiah series before we did 52 weeks of Jeremiah we did 66 weeks of Isaiah. In our Isaiah series uh, there were 60 verses that were compiled together between chapter 13, chapter 14, and chapter 47. So there were three different times in uh, the book of Isaiah, well 13 and 14 were back to back and chapter 47 uh, after that three different segments of Isaiah that were centered on Babylon, okay? Or quote-unquote Babylon. Because remember, Babylon is so much bigger than just one Gentile nation. We've been dealing with a lot of them. We've had eight of them, right? So far we've been dealing with uh, some of these other, the Philistines and Egypt and Edom and Moab and Ammon. And we've been dealing with Hazor and some of the ones that are are not as well known. Uh, We've had messages against Gentile nations for the last four or five weeks. Well, Babylon is something different. Babylon, not only just lengthy, it's, it's monstrous in its scope, it is absolutely expansive in its scope, in, including five separate developments in this chapter and seven separate, separate developments next week. Twelve overall messages in these two chapters, in these 110 verses. But bigger than Isaiah, bigger than John in Revelation, the apostle John in Revelation composes 42 verses in two chapters. Revelation 17 and Revelation 18. And uh, two chapters there whereby we have Mystery Babylon that's spoken of, the name and mystery, and the uh, religious emphasis of chapter 17 and the commercial emphasis of chapter 18. And those get handled different ways by different pastors and different theologians depending on how serious they are about a literal hermeneutic. And also depending upon even those that are serious about a literal hermeneutic that fail to recognize what's happening in Isaiah and Jeremiah. And so I'm glad that we've had the time to go through chapter 13, to go through chapter 14 and chapter 47 of Isaiah. And if you need to go home and dust off your Isaiah notes and remind yourself of what we talked about in those chapters, you realize most of what we spoke about was future, was prophecy, was eschatology, was the great tribulation and the millennium beyond. All right, we're talking yet future as of us today in 2017. All right. Is it 2017? Yeah. All right. So it's still yet future. Very little of what Isaiah had to say in chapter 13 or chapter 14, where you have the fall of Satan and the five-eye whales, or chapter 47, very little of what Isaiah had to say had anything to do with Nebuchadnezzar or the 5th century B.C., all right, or 6th century B.C. It, um, it, it started there, but it went so far beyond there to look in, in an eschatological framework. And we had the reason to understand that because of the text itself. I'm going to make that very strong here today as well. Much of what we see in chapter 50 has not been fulfilled. Much of what we're going to see next week in chapter 51 has not been fulfilled. You and I are looking with hindsight back over history, and we're going to say, well, that didn't happen. So, did God just get it wrong? Does He not know what He's talking about when He makes His prophecies? I think He does know what He's talking about when He makes His prophecies. For example, he said, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. And and guess what happened? A virgin conceived and bore a son. That's right. And so we realize that God is not, you know, lucky some days and unlucky other days. He's not Nostradamus who gets most things wrong. Okay. And even the ones they claim are right are kind of fishy. All right. I don't put a lot of stock into Nostradamus, but uh, God is not like that. God gets everything 100% right and exactly right. And if we are tap dancing or we're trying to change language or we're trying to use weasel words to try to explain how something really happened when it really didn't, we are in a bad theological place if that happens. We're in a bad hermeneutical place if we, if we have to go there or do something like that. We're no better than the liberals at that point. So we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that today. We're not going to do that next week. We're not going to do that in 50 or 51 because we didn't do that in Isaiah 13 or Isaiah 14 or Isaiah 47. And, uh, and I think because of that, too, we have the best framework going into Revelation 17 and 18. And we're not going to be arguing over what do we think Babylon's all about in Revelation 17. Well, see, it's code. It, it really represents Rome, does it? All right. What does it really represent? And uh, Babylon means Babylon, except when it means something bigger than Babylon. That's what I'm going to demonstrate for you today. All right. So starting with the first 10 verses of chapter 50. understand Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans, will fall. Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans, will fall. And we've, said, we've seen this several times, and we've learned that depending on the passage we're talking about, these terms are interchangeable. Babylon is interchangeable with Chaldeans, all right? And Babylon is a city. Babylonia is a region. Uh, Chaldeans are an ethnic group, all right? The Chaldeans are a particular people within the larger sphere. And sometimes they had power and sometimes they didn't, depending on what history of of Babylon you're talking about. Uh, But for Isaiah... They were roughly synonymous for for Jeremiah, they're roughly synonymous, and we're okay taking it as such. We still want to recognize the distinctions as we're dealing with it. So let's look at these verses. The word which the Lord spoke concerning Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans, through Jeremiah the prophet, declare and proclaim among the nations, proclaim it and lift up a standard. Do not conceal it, but say, Babylon has been captured, Bel has been put to shame, Marduk has been shattered, those are the chief gods of the Babylonians. Her images have been put to shame. Her idols have been shattered. For a nation has come up against her out of the north. It will make her land an object of horror, and there will be no inhabitant in it. Both man and beast have wandered off. They have gone away. In those days and at that time, declares the Lord, the sons of Israel will come, both they and the sons of Judah as well. They will go along weeping as they go, and it will be the Lord their God they will seek. They will ask for the way to Zion, turning their face, um, faces in its direction. They will come that they may join themselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will not be forgotten. Okay? Okay? This is second advent, folks. This is the tribulation. This is eschatology. This is not history. This is not Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah bringing them back from their 70-year captivity in the Old Testament. Verse 6, My people have become lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. They have made them turn aside on the mountains. They have gone along from mountain to hill and have forgotten their resting place. All who came upon them have devoured them. Their adversaries have said, We are not guilty. Inasmuch as they have sinned against the Lord who is the habitation of righteousness, even the Lord, the hope of their fathers. Let me get three more verses here, 8 through 10. Wander away from the midst of Babylon and go forth from the land of the Chaldeans. Be also like male goats at the head of the flock. For behold, I'm going to arouse and bring up against Babylon a horde of great nations from the land of the north, and they will draw up their battle lines against her from there she will be taken captive. Their arrows will be like an expert warrior who does not return empty-handed. Chaldea will become plunder. All who plunder her will have had enough, declares the Lord. All right, so here's our first out of the five messages from chapter 50. And it's a message of doom, no question. Babylon is going to fall. Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans, will fall. Well, understand, biblically speaking, Babylon is a lot bigger than any other nation we want to look at. From the time of Nimrod, we're talking Genesis 10, Babylon was a contested city and a contested land. You know how many times it changes hands? And so the prophecy of the fall of Babylon is not a hard prophecy to make. It's going to happen a dozen times throughout the Old Testament or more, and and more times still yet future. Sumerians, Akkadians, Amorites, Kassites, Assyrians, Elamites. Remember the Elamites from last week, that kind of enigmatic group? Chaldeans, Medes, Persians and Greeks all claimed Babylonian dominion. And there was something about Babel, there was something about what Babel represents. Remember when Nimrod built the tower? Remember that the whole point of the tower is opposition against God, and a place of uh, a place of human glory where people are going to come together and build a name for themselves. And the dream of Babel has never died. The dream of, of, of humanity standing opposed to God has never died. That's why I believe Babylon will be rebuilt between now and the tribulation. Babylon will be featured in the, in the eschatology of Israel, standing opposed to the Lord. Um, it's Chaldean Babylon that has center stage in the Hebrew Scriptures. Remember, Abraham came out of where? He came out of Ur of the Chaldees. All right, and so the connection is very strong between the Jewish people and the Chaldeans and the Babylonians, and uh, there's different applications to be made there. We also want to understand something different happened when God himself removed his glory from Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. It was the Babylonians that he selected to do that. It wasn't the Egyptians or the Assyrians or Philistines or anybody else. There were a lot of Gentile nations that have afflicted the Jews over the years, but something different and unique happens when the Davidic throne is vacated, when Zedekiah is hauled off in chains, when the temple is destroyed, when the glory departs. Something new is underway. And Daniel actually gives us the prophecies as it relates to Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. We have a statue that is presented. We have an unfolding plan that is represented. Babylon is the head of that plan. And Babylon ultimately does not reach its eschatological destruction until Jesus Christ returns the second advent. And so much of what we see in Isaiah 14, Isaiah 47, Jeremiah 50, Jeremiah 51 does not have a fulfillment at the hands of Cyrus or the Persians. does not have a fulfillment in the Old Testament. And if you try to say it does... You got a lot of uh, dancing to do around some verses that plainly did not happen, okay? And it's much easier to say it hasn't happened, but it will happen. I think it's a much simpler case to defend. Great stress is laid on Babylon's destruction and resultant, notice, uninhabited object of horror mentioned this last week. We talked about demons. We talked about haunted houses, haunted lands. We talked about an accursed land. We talked about what happens. And we're not talking Halloween and ghost stories, okay, or Hollywood uh, movies or some kind of silly stuff there, okay? It's not poltergeist. We're talking about the scriptures that portray fallen angels and demons and territory that has been given over to a curse, And we see this as an effect of God's righteous judgment, particularly when a land has been defiled. Murder and bloodshed and and, uh, the the fornication that defiles the land. So if you'll notice in these verses, real quickly here, verse 3, I will make her land an object of horror. There will be no inhabitant in it. You know, after the Persians conquered Babylon, they they didn't depopulate the city. It fell in a single night and and the population was mostly spared. The king was executed. Daniel was made a regent and and, uh, Darius the Mede was made a, a regent and the city continued. It remains populated throughout the Persian era, throughout the Greek era, throughout the Seleucid era, into the Roman era before it finally starts to get kind of depopulated slightly. They started to move them from Babylon to Seleucia, the Greeks did. But the region itself remained inhabited even on into post-Christian times, into beyond the New Testament, into the Middle Ages. Where do you think the Babylonian Talmud got written? Here's a clue. Okay. It's called the Babylonian Talmud. All right. And there were more Jews in Babylon than there were in Jerusalem. The Babylonian Talmud is longer than the Jerusalem Talmud. Okay. There were more Jews there. More rabbis. Um, So... What's this about then? How's the land going to be uninhabited, an object of horror? In verse 12, we haven't gotten there yet, but stay tuned. Uh, Verse 12, uh, a wilderness, a parched land, and a desert. Verse 13, completely desolate. Everyone who passes by Babylon will be horrified and will hiss because of all her wounds. In uh, it was about the third century, I guess, when Trajan sailed down, the, when Rome reached its final extent, uh, the Roman Empire even reached the Persian Gulf and Trajan sailed down the Euphrates and he uh, went to Babylon and he was disappointed, but it was still inhabited and he was offered a sacrifice in a temple there that uh, he wanted to, in fact, he wanted to offer the sacrifice in the very home that Alexander died in. Alexander the Great died in Babylon, a populated Babylon. All right. So uh, everyone who passes by Babylon will be horrified, will hiss because of all her wounds. Verse 23, how the hammer of the whole earth has been cut off and broken, how Babylon has become an object of horror among the nations. Verse 26, come to her from the farthest border, open up her barns, pile her up like heaps, and utterly destroy her. Let nothing be left to her. Clearly, these were not fulfilled in the Old Testament. And to try to say they were really misses the point of how God prophesies what he prophesies. Uh, verse 39, desert, Therefore desert creatures will live there along with the jackals. Remember the tan, the little tanin, the little dragon jackals there. The ostriches also will live in it. and will, It will never again be inhabited or dwelt in from generation to generation. Verse 40, As when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah with its neighbors, declares the Lord. You know, technically speaking, there's different archaeologists have said they found them, but I don't know that anybody's really found them because they're always arguing with one another. No, this is the real Sodom. No, this is the real Sodom. No, this is the real Gomorrah. No, this is the real Gomorrah. And so they've been discovered, you know, a hundred times in the last two hundred years, or maybe they haven't been discovered yet. Okay, yeah, they found a lot of ruins under a lot of sulfur, but how how do they know? Okay. Anyway, um. But they've got to sell books, so you know, they're going to write what they're going to write. That's verse 40. All of those references here in, in chapter 50. And guess what? It continues in chapter 51. Again, not to belabor the point, but I want the repetition to make the impact, because I think that's what God's doing here. Fifty-one twenty-nine. the land quakes and writhes for the purpose of the Lord against Babylon, stand to make the land of Babylon a desolation without inhabitants. All right, it's fifty-one twenty-nine, and then uh, there should be thirty-seven. Babylon will become a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals, an object of horror and hissing, without inhabitants. Remember, the jackals are the little dragons, the tan and from the tanin. Verse forty-three: Her cities have become an object of horror, a parched land and a desert, a land in which no man lives, and through which no sons of man, no son of man, passes. Finally, verse 62. Um, you, Lord, have promised concerning this place to cut it off so that there will be nothing dwelling in it, whether man or beast, but it will have a perpetual desolation. All right. Now, does that make an impact? I think God's trying to say something here. And uh, in case you missed it, this is in complete agreement with Isaiah from Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah says something very similar in Isaiah 13 and verse uh, 20. Okay? Okay. And so something bigger is happening here. The message against Babylon is different from the oracle against Egypt or the Philistines or Edom or Moab or any of the eight nations we've already seen. There is something different happening in chapter 50 and 51. And what we're getting actually is eschatology, looking forward to Israel's future, the great tribulation that... uh, Israel has to look forward to. You see, this prophecy was not fulfilled by the Medo-Persian overthrow of Babylon. By the way, the Bible describes that night that it happens. There's a dinner party happening in Babylon and the writing appears on the wall. Say, the writing had actually been on the wall a lot longer than that, but it made, they finally saw it on that night in which the, the uh, capture came. They bring Daniel in to, to give the message. So you can read about that if you like in Daniel 5, verses 28 through 31. I'm going to save time today and not take us there. All right. We have uh, language in the text that demands we do something different. And that happens here in verse 4. We have an idiom, we have an expression, in those days and at that time. Remember, we've seen this before. We've seen it in chapter 3, chapter 33. It, It appears frequently. It's a common expression in Jeremiah. I think it's also used by other prophets, but Jeremiah most of all is fond of it. Jeremiah 50 and verse 4. In those days and at that time, declares the Lord. In those days and at that time. Does that seem redundant? In those days and at that time. Well, that's a formula and that's being used specifically to, to bring them forward into eschatology into the coming day of the Lord, into the coming promises when God himself visits them, when God himself remembers his covenant, when God himself brings Israel into their future glory. In those days and at that time, it is an eschatological formula common to Jeremiah. We have it here in verse 4, we have it again in verse 20. Comes up again in verse 20. And so we have markers in the text that hermeneutically force us to do something different we want to do something different with these with these babylon messages than we did with the egypt or the edom or the moabite or the philistine messages those most of those had their fulfillments in the in the sixth century bc all right Um, so verse 20 in those days and at that time declares the lord search will be made for the iniquity of israel but there will be none and for the sins of Judah, but they will not be found, for I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. And we all know this, right? What day is it that Israel's sins are forgiven? What day is it that you can search high and low and not find a single one of them? It's when he brings them under the bond of the covenant and brings them into the new covenant when he remembers their sin no more. This didn't happen when Zerubbabel brought back a remnant from Babylon or Ezra brought back a remnant or Nehemiah brought back. a. Rem- you know how much sin they had when Ezra and Nehemiah were, were preaching? They had tons of sin. They were marrying foreign women. They were fornicating left and right. They were neglecting the temple so they could build their own, uh, their own farms and, and houses and lands. And they were, uh, they were just as rebellious as, as you could ask for. So much so that the prophets were wondering, gee, do we go back to do another captivity? <laughs> you know, how does this work? There was tons of sin after they came back from Babylon. But here it says, Search, and you won't find any. Search will be made for the iniquity of Israel, but there will be none. That's like when you and I pass by the Bema seat. When you and I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, guess what? I love that, the, the, when at the judgment bar I stand before my king and he the book will, books will open, they cannot find a thing. Isn't that great? Then will my voice be glad while tears of joy will flow because I had it settled and settled long ago. Okay? And that's the truth. When they won't find a thing, there will be nothing recorded against us because all of it will be wiped away by the judgment function of the justice of God. So, um, language we have in chapter 3, chapter 33, language we have here, uh, all of this, we see that the direct consequences of which is Israel's eternal blessing under the new covenant. That did not happen in the 5th century BC. That did not happen when Zerubbabel brought them back. Okay? In fact, barely 10% of the Jewish people went back from Babylon to Jerusalem anyway. The bulk of the Jewish people were fat, dumb, and happy in Babylon. They stayed in Babylon. It was just a, a small group, a, a tithe that returned to live in, uh, in the land of Canaan. All right. The message against Babylon is more comprehensive than any other Gentile oracle as Babylon represents, notice, the inception of the Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, global Gentile hostility against the God of Israel. Something new happens when Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple. Something new happens when the Davidic throne is vacated. All of a sudden, there is a new dynamic at work on the world stage. Geopolitics becomes different with a a vacated Davidic throne. Because God had already promised David he would never lack a man to sit on the throne. That the son of David would sit on the throne forever. So how does the throne get vacated in the days of Zerubbabel? I'm sorry, Zedekiah. Okay, or really jehoiakim how does the Davidic throne get vacated and why is it still waiting to be, to be reseated again? It has not been reseated yet, and it won't be until Jesus Christ conquers at second advent. He was entitled to it at first advent, but never claimed it. His father had not yet granted it to him. I find that a remarkable thing. And even Zerubbabel, by the way, Zerubbabel was entitled to it. He was the direct heir, father to son, father to son, through Jeconiah, He was entitled to the throne of David and yet he brought a group of captives back and he ruled as a Persian governor. Not as a king of David. Not as king of the Jews. Not on the throne of David. He would not not claim that for himself. Anyway, uh, one quick look. Let's look at this. Daniel chapter 2. So hold your finger there in Jeremiah 50 and let's go over to Daniel chapter 2. I'll be teaching this to... uh, the students at Word of God Bible College in Kiev. Appreciate it if you'd be praying for that. But Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. There's a statue with a head of gold, chest of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet partly of iron, partly of clay. And there is a course of Gentile history that is laid out there. And Daniel is taught what God is doing with this vacated Davidic throne. What God is doing when His people, who should be the stewards on this earth, His people are no longer exercising their own independent dominion. Now, without teaching the whole chapter, hopefully you're familiar with it, (laughs) but if not, let me just bring something to your attention. Babylon gives way to Persia when the head of gold gives way to the chest of silver. Persia gives way to Greece when the chest of silver gives way to the belly and thighs of bronze. Greece gives way to Rome when the the belly and thighs of bronze give gives way to the legs of iron, all right, then Rome gets an injection of clay. Rome is not conquered by a a fifth empire. Rome receives an injection of clay and then crumbles. And that historically is why we understand the fall of Rome uh, when that happened in the 5th century AD and why we're not sweating anything that's happened ever since then because we're still waiting for the feet of iron and clay to make their appearance, which they will in uh, under Antichrist's uh, restructured Roman Empire. So in all of this, but notice, when Jesus Christ comes and conquers, there's a very key expression in verse 35. You'll notice, um, uh, so in verse 32, the head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breasts and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet partly of iron and partly of clay. We haven't reached the feet yet. Or if we've reached the feet, we haven't reached the toes yet. Let me say that. We don't have 10 horns. We don't have the 10 toes. Maybe we're in the feet. Uh, Yeah, I'd say we're in the feet, but we're not in the toes yet. You kept looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet, and notice, struck on the feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, you see that? All the way back to Babylon. The gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So, when Jesus Christ conquers arm Armageddon, this vision gets fulfilled, and the reality of this then gets fulfilled. And the reason why all of our Babylon messages from Isaiah 13, Isaiah 14, Isaiah 47, Jeremiah 50, Jeremiah 51, these big sweeping Babylon panoramas, they are bigger than 6th century Babylon. They're bigger than the Persians overthrowing the Babylonians. It's actually a much larger message and it incorporates all of this. It incorporates the Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, global Gentile hostility against the God of Israel. That's what it comes down to. And so we can take it moving forward. We can start to see the different tribulational applications as they appear here. And we can realize why, in many respects, Babylon's still here. The Babylonian queen of heaven worship is still here on the planet today. It's the biggest segment of Christendom under Roman Catholicism. Worship's the queen of heaven. It came from Babylon. Babylon. Babylon is still here to this day. Persia is still here to this day. Greece is still here to this day. And especially Rome is still here to this day. And uh, that whole structure, the BPGR, global Gentile hostility structure, is still here to this day. And it will be until Jesus Christ smashes it at Armageddon when he destroys it in his second advent. All right. The next paragraph, verses 11 through 20. 11 through 20. And by the way, we get to these conclusions because of markers in the text. We're hermeneutically applying markers in the text like in those days and at that time. And we're observing how the author himself is taking us beyond his immediate generation and how he's taking us forward to the end times, how he's taking us forward to the kingdom of God's glory, to sinless righteousness. All right? All right. And we're going there because the text is taking us there. We're not going there because we're scratching our heads in the 21st century saying, well, gee, these prophecies haven't been fulfilled yet. (laughs) Okay? And uh, we're uh, we're not using an escape clause of saying, well, they haven't been fulfilled yet, so they must still be future. They are future because the text told us they were future. And so we're not surprised that they haven't been fulfilled yet. It's a no-shocker to us that they weren't fulfilled in the Old Testament, if that makes any sense. All right. Assyria and Babylon were God's tools for the captivity of Israel and Judah. Remember, Assyria swept away the 10 northern tribes. Babylon swept away the two southern tribes. They were selected for their pride, and the consequence of their usage was their national destruction. God didn't pick them because they were godly. He picked them because they were wicked. And anyone that curses the Jews has to be cursed. I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you will be cursed. So he's not going to take a righteous nation and use them to curse the Jews. And then you have to turn around and curse the, the righteous nation. No, he chooses a wicked nation. One that would be subject to judgment anyway. And he uses them to curse the Jews. And then he can curse them for cursing the Jews. Does that make sense? All right. And so in verses 11 through 20, we see this. Because you were glad, because you were jubilant, O you who pillage my heritage, because you skip about like a threshing heifer and neigh like stallions, you know? They like seeing the Jews get it. Just like, you know, you like watching a, you know, there's certain sports teams and you just, you don't really, I mean, you don't care who they're playing, you're just happy if somebody beats them. You know? I'm not naming names, but... Anyway. And then this is the case. You're skipping about because the Jews have fallen. And yet, you don't understand. God's not skipping about, happy about it. He's, uh, he's not rejoicing over disciplining His own people. All right. Verse 13, Because of the indignation of the Lord, she will not be inhabited. We talked about the desolation already. Um, verse 14, Draw up your battle lines against Babylon on every side. All you who bend the bow, shoot at her. Do not be sparing with your arrows, for she has sinned against the Lord. Raise your battle cry against her on every side. She has given herself up. Her pillars have fallen. Her walls have been torn down. For this is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance on her as she has done to others. So do to her. Cut off the sower from Babylon and the one who wields the sickle of the time of harvest. From before the sword of the oppressor, they will each turn back to her own, his own people and they will each flee to his own land." Uh, Three more verses here, 17 through 20. Israel is a scattered flock. The lions have driven them away. The first one who devoured him was the king of Assyria. And the last one who has broken his bones is Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. See, these are the tools that were used to punish them in uh, in the Old Testament. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm going to punish the king of Babylon and his land, just as I punish the king of Assyria. And I will bring Israel back to his pasture, and he will graze on Carmel and Bashan, and his desire will be satisfied in the hill country of Ephraim and Gilead. In those days and at that time, declares the Lord, and we already discussed this, search will be made uh, for the iniquity of Israel, and there will be none, and for the sins of Judah, but they will not be found for I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. All right? So here's the second of five messages in this chapter. Going to punish Babylon. It has a a short application in in that century because there is a remnant that comes back, but ultimately it looks forward to the second advent. looks forward eschatologically in those days and at that time with their sin being removed. Remember, they can't have their sin removed until the new covenant is put into effect, Jeremiah 31, 34. All right. Both Assyria and Babylon boasted in their greatness rather than humbly acknowledging their function as tools in God's hand. And this was a message back in Isaiah, Isaiah 10 and verse 15. Why does the axe boast? How can the axe boast? You know, if someone with skill was employing the axe, that's one thing, but if someone like me was wielding the axe, that's something else, okay? Because there are people that are good with tools and people that are not good with tools. And people that can take one whack at a log and boom, they split it like that. You know, and a couple of whacks. And they've got chunks, they've got logs that they can use for actual fires and whatnot. You know, I take an axe and I've got pulp, you know, because I beat the thing ferociously. And without any real skill, just a lot of violence and anger that, that makes toothpicks out of things. But Isaiah ten fifteen, you might recall, tools cannot boast. Tools cannot boast. Is the ax to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Really, who gets credit? The one who chops with it. Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That will be like a club wielding those who lift it or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. So don't confuse the tool with the hand that wields the tool. By the way, this is why pastors can't boast. <laughs> We're just tools in the Lord's hand. If any fruit happens in Austin Bible Church, it's because Jesus Christ wields the tool in his hand. And that's why he gets extra glory. You and I complain we have imperfect tools. And then we blame, well, it would have turned out better except if I had a crummy tool, okay? God never complains about the crummy tool. He uses the crummy tool and still accomplishes perfect results. That way the tool can't boast. Unlike the Zen returning, that's my shorthand for Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, you might recall that they were swept away to captivity in three different waves, 605, 597, 587. Likewise, as they were swept away in three waves, they returned in three waves. Zerubbabel brought a group, Ezra brought a group, Nehemiah brought a group. And so my shorthand, I call it the Zen, Z-E-N, returnings. I invented that. I coined that. I trademarked that. I should be collecting royalties. If you see anyone that uses that in a book, let me know because that's mine. But see there, you know, read Ezra 9 and 6 sometimes. They had tons of sin. They had so much sin, Ezra was ready to puke. Okay? And I mean, who, who reads Ezra and Nehemiah anyway? But this will be a good preview for you because uh, Lewis will be speaking from this portion of the Bible when I'm overseas. So uh, I've got this coming up on a couple of Wednesdays here shortly. But Ezra 9 and verse 6, I said, Oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. All right. That's, uh, that's quite a bit different than what we read about in, in Jeremiah 50 and verse 20 that search will be made and we can't find any sin. Ezra looks around and says, It's past my head. It's up to here and higher. I'm embarrassed by all the sin everywhere. Now, unlike the Zen returnings, the eschatological return of Israel and Judah coincides with the forgiveness of their sins. The forgiveness of their sins. Remember Jeremiah 31, 34, the new covenant that's promised. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And one of those blessings of the new covenant is I will remember their sin no more. I will remember their sin no more. That's still future. Jesus said it was future. And the night in which he was betrayed, he's given communion. And he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. It's still future. It has not yet been applied to Israel. It was shed, but not yet applied to the nation of Israel. All right. Third message of chapter 50. See, we're making it. Third message of chapter 50. By the way, it's Palm Sunday. I'm still looking for my Palm Sunday connection, but we'll we'll find something. Verses 21 through 28, against the land of Merathaim, where's that? Go up against it, and against the inhabitants of Pecod, where's that? They're not real places, but these are symbolic names that are designed to teach content. And we need to learn about this. When God uses name calling, when God uses symbolic names, He does so for a reason. Again, the context is Babylon, but we have a message that goes here in the context of this name calling. Slay and utterly destroy them, declares the Lord, and do according to all that I have commanded you. The noise of battle is the land, is in the land, and great destruction. How the hammer of the whole earth has been cut off and broken. This is not a war hammer, by the way. It's, it's a, uh, a smithy. It's a, it's a metallurgy uh, hammer. This is uh, somebody that's supplying weapons, uh, an arms dealer, if you will, for the world. How the hammer of the whole earth has been cut off and broken. How Babylon has become an object of horror among the nations. I set a snare for you and you were also caught, O Babylon. While you yourself were not aware, you have been found and also seized because you have engaged in conflict with the Lord. In fact, they're caught earlier than they even realize. The Lord has opened His armory. (laughs) You're so proud of what you're doing? Let me show you what I'm doing. The Lord has opened His armory and has brought forth the weapons of his indignation. For it is a work of the Lord God of hosts in the land of the Chaldeans. Come to her from the farthest border, open uh, up her barns, pile up her like heaps, and uh, utterly destroy her. Let nothing be left to her. Pull all of her young bowls, to, uh, put all of her young bowls to the sword. Let them go down to the slaughter. Woe be upon them, for their day has come, the time of their punishment. It ends with verse 28, "...there is a sound of fugitives and refugees from the land of Babylon to declare in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God, vengeance f- for His temple." Alright, so here's the third of these five messages in uh, in this chapter. Marathiam and Pecod are not literal historical names for Babylon, but symbolic names to represent double rebellion. That's uh, Mara, uh, marathiam is double rebellion. And Peacod is an appointment or, a, or a, uh, a judgment, an appointed punishment. The hammer of the whole earth is doomed when the Lord opens His own armory and issues the weapons of His indignation. This is an exciting thing. And if we had more time, how fun would this be? Because the Lord Himself when he comes to do battle, he's getting equipped out of this armory. And we're going to be following him on white horses, right? He's going to wrap himself with zeal as with a garment, and he's going to descend uh, to inflict God's wrath upon this earth. What a day that's going to be. And we're following him on white horses as per Revelation chapter 19. I'm excited about that. And so uh, we got the study here on the armory, different things. I can get lost in the in the, the word study and different things. In mean, my army days, I was uh, I worked in a lot of armories. I was an MP in the army, and especially on the missile site um, where we didn't do a lot of police type stuff. We didn't do a lot of law enforcement functions, but we we were tasked with uh, being in charge of the armory. So we maintained the weapons, we inventoried the ammunition and, and different things. So I've been in a lot of armories over the years, and some are uh, amusing. <laughs> Not very impressive at all, but they're rooms with weapons, so you call them armories, um, but I think God's armory in the heavenlies has got to be a sight to behold. Can you imagine? Imagine what that's like when He opens that up for business and starts issuing the weapons out of there. What a day is that going to be? Young bulls. Uh, oftentimes, depending on the passage, depending on the context, like Psalm 22, for example, other passages, Young bulls can be figuratively applied to fallen angels in opposition to the work of Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting. If you ever if you look in Ezekiel, you look in Exodus, you, you find an actual description, a physical description of what cherubim look like. They've got bull faces, okay? Most of them. Some of them have eagle faces and lion faces, and, and some of them have four faces, depending on which side you 're looking at. But for the most part, your typical average run-of the mill everyday ordinary cherubim has a bull face, okay He has a bull face, which is why that particular animal in the zoological realm is the one that 's selected for sacrifices it 's selected for uh, legitimate sacrifices in god 's plan, but it 's also selected for pagan sacrifices. The the fallen angels love having their image sacrificed. They love being worshipped. There's a reason why mythology includes minotaurs, uh, these men with the bull faces. The fallen angels love that. See? And so uh, these young bulls, depending on the passage we're looking at, including Psalm 22, when Jesus is on the cross and he says, many of the bulls of Bashan have surrounded me. You're familiar with that? Psalm 22... In verse 12, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Why is Bashan so significant? We saw Bashan earlier in Jeremiah 50. Um, Is he talking about the animal? Is this a zoological discussion? No, this is angelic. This is the role of Satan in uh, crucifying the Christ. In fact, we're told in Colossians 1 that if the rulers of this age had understood the wisdom of God, they wouldn't have done it. They would not have crucified the the Son of Glory. But see, they didn't understand that uh, their victory was actually their defeat. When they crucified the Christ, they uh, accomplished their defeat. Uh, Isaiah 34-7 is another example. The language of a young bull that actually has an angelic application. Um, The sword of the Lord... Is filled with blood, it is sated with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of kidneys of rams, for the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen also will fall with them, and young bulls with strong ones, thus their land will be soaked with blood, and their dust become greasy with fat, for the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Another example in Ezekiel thirty nine eighteen, if you want to turn there. Vengeance. Understand vengeance. He hasn't applied it yet. Okay? He's still waiting. He's still slow to anger. Jesus came in the first advent not for vengeance. He came in humility. He came to, to lay down His life that we could have eternal life. But when He comes back in second advent, the armory is open. He's here for vengeance. Vengeance is God's alone and a significant function of the second advent of Jesus Christ. And uh, again, we st- did significant work with this, I think, back in Isaiah chapter 34, chapter 59, um, in Psalms, Psalm 94. Familiar with this one? See, and here's the thing <laughs> people today want to take vengeance themselves, <laughs> you know, and we're not equipped for that. People today oh man, and you know, our carnality wakes up and we want, to just, we want to get it. I mean, we want to get vengeance. We want payback because we got hurt or we got attacked or we got criticized or we got whatever. Our, our feelings are hurt and our nose is out of joint and boy, we want, to, we want to pay back. It's not ours. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Uh, leave room for the wrath of God. We're not equipped for it or we can't handle it. Psalm 94, O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? You know, David was singing this a thousand years before Christ. (laughs) We're still singing it today. How long, Lord? How long? This, This world is getting so dark. God of vengeance, shine forth. See well. Should we really be praying that? Should we be hoping for that? Or should we be thankful that in our church age, in the age of grace, God desires none to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That God is so merciful and He's so patient. Should we not regard the kindness of our God as a patience unto repentance? Should we not be thankful? You know, had the trumpet sounded last night, I've got loved ones that would be uh, left behind. Yeah, I'd be snatched out of here. You all would be snatched out of here, but. We've got loved ones that would still be here. Probably be taking the mark of the beast. Maybe subject to the, the God of this age and unrestrained uh, evil. I don't want to see him go through that. So hey, today's a day I can preach the gospel. Psalm 149 verses 6-9 through nine, at the end of the Psalms addresses this. There's more in Psalm 94 but I've got to go quickly. Let the godly ones exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praise of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and nobles with fetters, to execute on them the judgment written. This is the honor for all the godly ones. Praise the Lord. We will stand with the holy ones. We are following Christ. Christ is the one that's going to do the battle. We're just going to sing. (laughs) Isn't that great? We get to sing... As he, uh, as he goes forth. All right, Isaiah 34, Isaiah 59, I'll let those go as well. You'll like Isaiah 59 especially. Great picture of the Christ. Our fourth message. Oh, okay, let me get Isaiah 59. What a great chapter. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is His ear so dull that it cannot hear. <laughs> what are you grumbling about? God's not listening to your prayers? God can't do anything about it? Is, really, is the problem because He's hard of hearing? Or is the problem that He's just His hand is so limp He can't do anything about it? No. No. The issue is we're in sin and we need to confess so that He starts listening to us again, and so that He moves His hand on our behalf. Yeah, and that's how the chapter starts. Uh, we get down uh, verse 9, we get down lower, uh, headed for verse 15. Um, truth is lacking. That's our generation, right? Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in His sight that there was no justice. And He saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Okay, that's like that cathedral's tune the the song they sing he looked through heaven and found a savior because no one else was available to do it so he did it his own arm brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him he put on righteousness like a breastplate we have righteousness you know what our armor is about the breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation on his head we've got a helmet of salvation He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. Oh, wait a minute. We don't have those. That's not our Ephesians 6 armor. That's nowhere in the New Testament. You and I are not equipped to wear this. We don't have the character. We don't have the integrity. We don't have the uh, maturity. God and God alone can apply global vengeance without going carnal. Global vengeance in righteousness and holiness and purity. You know, I would start and with the first couple I'd start liking it. I'd enjoy it. And then I would draw pleasure from what I should not be drawing pleasure from. Okay? And so would you. So don't don't think he wouldn't. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the coastlands he will make recompense. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west, his glory from the rising of the sun. Oh, there's so much here. A Redeemer will come to Zion, to those who turn from transgression, and Jacob declares the Lord. Anyway, this is all second event, looking forward to his victory. Okay, fourth message, verses 29 through 43. The Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, is the glorious one who brings down the arrogant one. Who do you think the arrogant one is? Satan, thank you. Yeah, it's not Nebuchadnezzar. It's not a a human being, okay? So often, we saw this in in Isaiah as well. We saw the power behind the throne. We saw it in Ezekiel as well, the power behind the throne. you got the prince of Tyre, you've got the ruler of Tyre, both in the same chapter. Same thing in Isaiah 14. Same thing here. We've got the arrogant one. The arrogant one. Some and many against Babylon. And by the way, this, this army that comes from the north, it's not the Media Persia overthrow. That came from the east. Okay? Media Persia with some Elamite uh, auxiliary units. They came from the east. The eschatological destruction of Babylon comes from the north. And we see this repeatedly from the far north, from the uttermost regions. All right, summon many against Babylon, all those who bend the bow and camp against her on every side. And we've seen bows in this chapter a lot, a lot of archery in this chapter. In other words, a lot of long distance cruise missiles. <laughs> Just saying. And they don't miss. Encamp against her on every side, let there be no escape, repay her according to her work. According to all that she has done, so do to her, for she has become arrogant against the Lord, against the Holy One of Israel. Now, we will stand with the Holy One. What a blessing for us, the glorious one. Therefore, her young men will fall in her streets. All her men of war will be silenced in that day, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O arrogant one, declares the Lord God of hosts, for your day has come, the time when I will punish you. See, it bugs me sometimes that Satan still prowls about like a roaring lion seeking to devour. I mean, why is he still loose? Can we be done with this guy already? Now there is coming a day. The arrogant one will stumble and fall with no one to raise him up, and I will set fire to his cities. I will devour all his environs. And it goes on. You got the Redeemer in verse uh, 34. The Goel, the kinsman redeemer. The redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He will vigorously plead their case so that he may bring rest to the earth, but turmoil to the inhabitants of Babylon. And then fun. Play on words there. It's great because Babel itself means confusion. God confused their languages at Babel. It's kind of neat to see this here. Um, And there's so much more. There's a sword, a sword against the Chaldeans, a sword against the inhabitants of Babylon, a uh, sword against the oracle priests, the sword against their horses, um, against their chariots, against the foreigners uh, who are in the midst of her. They will all become like women. No, they will all become women. A sword against her treasures, and they will be plundered. All right. Verse 39, desert creatures will live there along with the tan, the jackals, ostriches. We talked about this. Never inhabited, dwelt in. As was the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, no inhabitants, no man will live there, nor son of man reside in it. Behold, a people is coming from the north and a great nation, and many kings will be aroused from the remotest parts of the earth. See, Antichrist views himself as the king of kings and lord of lords. He's a tool in God's hands for the destruction of eschatological Babylon. Doesn't even realize it. His doom is written before he even knows it's written because he thinks he has the victory. Anyway. There's different things here. Um, the king, It ends with verse 43. The king of Babylon has heard the report about them. His hand hands hang limp. Distress has gripped him. Agony like a woman in childbirth. Okay, and I've seen it, never experienced it. But I've seen it, and I recognize when you're going through it, that's all you're doing, okay? That's 100% of your focus or more. I mean, that's it. You're just, you're just surviving until it's done, and uh, that's it, okay? When, they're, when they're, uh, being, uh, this destruction is being wreaked upon them, they are, uh, that's all, that's 100% of their focus is uh, trying to survive, and they're not going to. Uh, the Hebrew, Zadon, Zadon the arrogant is brought down, Zadon, Z- Zadon going down, I guess you would say, Zadon, Zadon, anyway, I tried to be clever there and I failed, but that's, uh, but see, this is the pattern, right? God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I mean, we know this, we know James 4 and First Peter 5, and we, we know the principles, we want to live those principles personally daily because we see it again and again and again. And there is no greater champion of pride than Satan himself. He's king over all the sons of pride, we're told. So you can read about it. It's in great agreement with Isaiah 13. It's in great agreement with Malachi 4. Uh, we understand it from Proverbs 11, from Deuteronomy 17. God is opposed to the proud. He does give grace to the humble. Such arrogance always stands against humble disciples of truth. By the way, you and I come into this conflict because we're living in the truth. You and I assemble in the name of Jesus Christ to receive instruction. How popular is that in our generation? Read Psalm 119 sometime and notice six different times that the psalmist encountered the arrogant. And in many cases, they were his own princes. They were his own political leaders, the elders of his tribe, people who should have set the right example and should have known better. And you'll see there a, a conflict between the, uh, the humble and the arrogant. We're going to make it. We're going to make it. Let me give you a preview here. Again, Psalm 119. When I'm out of town, there'll be a young man up here preaching out of Psalm 119. Verse uh, 21, you rebuke the arrogant, the cursed, who wander from your commandments. Verse 51, the arrogant utterly deride me, yet I do not turn aside from your law. Verse 69, the arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart, I will observe your precepts. Why are they not content to just leave us alone? (laughs) Why are they content to slander us? Why are they trying to stop what we're doing? I mean, you don't have to believe what I believe, but just leave me alone, why don't you? They never will. They hate us because they hate the Lord. They hate the Word of God. Verse uh, 78. May the arrogant be ashamed, for they subvert me with a lie, but I shall meditate on your precepts. Verse 85. The arrogant have dug pits for me. They're going to fall in. Men who are not in accord with your law. Verse 85. That was 85. 122. Be surety for your servant for good. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. That arrogance is always standing against humble disciples of truth. Finally, verses 44 through 46. Who is like me? Who will summon me into court? <laughs> Again, we're we're rebuking Satan here in these verses, right? Satan was the liar who said, I will be like the Most High God. Satan is the one who uttered his five I wills. Satan is the one who views his plan as a a viable alternative to the Father's plan. His son is a viable alternative to the Father's son, the Antichrist, the Anti-Father. Behold, one will come up like a lion from the thicket of Jordan to to a perennially watered pasture. For an instant, I will make them run away from it and whoever is chosen, I will point over it. For who is like me and who will summon me into court? Who then is the shepherd who can stand before me? Therefore, hear the plan of the Lord, which he has planned against Babylon and his purposes, which he has purposed against the land of the Chaldeans. Surely they will drag them off, even the little ones of the flock. Surely he will make their pasture desolate because of them. At the shout, Babylon has been seized, the earth is shaken, and an outcry is heard among the nations. And we have Revelation 18 written before John ever wrote Revelation 18. And there it is. Who is like me? Who will summon me into court? Ultimately God's victory over Babylon is God's victory over Satan. I'm out of time, but we can turn to Isaiah 14 and see this. He said he will ascend, and God said, no you're not, you're going down you're going to descend to Sheol and they're going to throw a party when you get there. The accuser will be thrown down. In fact, he has an initial fall during the tribulation itself. We're told in Revelation chapter 12 that the accuser of our brethren is thrown down and he'll have a great wrath knowing that he has a very short time remaining. Read Revelation 12 sometimes. His global plan will be ended at Armageddon when we get to return. And I'm, I'm out of time. We'll just have to close with this. Do you know how to ride a horse? I, I don't. Not very well. I mean, I've ridden maybe five times in my life, and every time like, I'm nervous. Those are large animals, and uh, I usually try to wit, get you know evangelize the horse. I want to make sure he's a believer before I sit on him. <laughs> Never works, but. Um, and so then you, you, they help you climb up on the thing, and you sit there, and then he follows the horse in front of him because it's just a silly trail ride, and, and they're smarter than you, and they take you along the thing. Um, I wouldn't know how to drive manually or go, uh, go to a defi- uh, destination that the, the horse in front of me wasn't going to. Um, but here, when we get to Armageddon, we're going to be following him on white horses, heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war his eyes are a flame of fire on his head are many diadems he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood his name is called the word of god and the armies which are in heaven hello you and me why do you think we have armor clothed in fine linen, white and clean, the righteous acts of the saints. We've already been uh, through our bema seat, our judgment seat. We are glorified in our eternal reward. We're following him on white horses. And relax, we don't have to actually engage in the combat. Jesus will do all the fighting, but we're going to be singing. As we saw, we sing the the hallelujah chorus in that. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, that with it he may strike down the nations. And he gets to the end of this and he seizes the beast and the false prophet and they're thrown alive into the lake of fire and Satan is bound and thrown in a chain. So that's the good news. We win, all right? Jesus wins and we're in Christ. That's the, uh, that's the shorter version. Well, Isaiah 50, all right? Next week we'll come back and uh, we'll cover chapter 51. And like I say, it's longer than chapter 50. There's five messages in 50. There's seven messages in 51. And uh, it's Easter, it's, uh, it's uh, Communion Sunday, so we've got to talk fast if we're going to get through uh, 51 next week and 52 the week after that. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your grace. I thank you, Father, for the work of your Son. We're not in a religion with a founder that lived a long time ago and died a long time ago. We serve a risen Savior, and I thank you that he ever liveth to make intercession for the saints. And that he's seated at your right hand and he's seated it until you make his enemies a footstool for his feet. And I thank you, Father, that a day is coming in which he will no longer be seated, that he will take his stand and he will descend with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. I thank you, Father, that we are not destined for the wrath that we've been reading about the judgment upon this world, the recompense upon the the forces of Satan. We are delivered from the wrath to come, Father. We belong to your Son, and I thank you for that. Christ is risen. Christ is living, Father, and I thank you that we get to preach that, we get to sing that, we get to live that. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. We will dismiss with our closing